Blog Talk Radio. I'm 
Mwamba mubiai Mulu mawaji tanda Kwa wa waka yeme Mwena menshi Mawanye And welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, November 6, uh, 2021. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the current threat to national sovereignty in Ethiopia amid the escalating conflict initiated by Western-backed rebel groupings. Zimbabwe's President uh, Emerson Mnangagwa has attended the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow, Scotland. We'll have details on that as well. Reports as well uh, say that 98 people have been killed in an oil tanker explosion in the West African state of Sierra Leone. And the Sudanese mass organizations have rejected a settlement offered by the military leaders uh, that seized power on October the 25th. In the second hour, we look at the contributions of the Ghanaian musician Nana Kwame Ampadu, uh, who recently joined the Ancestors. 
In addition, uh, we examine in detail the conflict in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia. Finally, we look into other issues impacting Africa and the entire international community. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude with the African Brothers Band International uh, from uh, the West African state of Ghana, uh, the band uh, headed by Nana Kwame Amparu. Uh, this is an album uh, entitled Tribute to DK uh, from 1980. Let's listen in. Oh, 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 oh,
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, and uh, that was the music of the African Brothers Band International, uh, led by Nanakwami Amparu, uh, who uh, recently joined the Ancestors, uh, classic Pan-African music uh, from the West African state of Ghana. And later on in the program, we'll have more information on the life, times, and contributions of uh, Nanakwami Amparu. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the situation in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia. And uh, there was an article that was published just recently uh, by Dr. Burhanu Bocha and Dr. Sega Solomon. They say that in Africa, the cradle of humankind, interactions uh, with foreign powers have historically only served to reduce freedom and independence. The late 19th century saw a movement towards attempting to revive territorial integrity in Africa through the spirit of Pan-Africanism. The belief that all Africans share a common history and a common destiny and that African unity is imperative for progress. By this time, Ethiopia was already recognized as an independent nation, having repelled an Italian invasion at the Battle of Adwa, thereby cementing its position as a paragon of African independence. With this long history, dating back uh, to the Solomonic uh, dynasties uh, from Emperor Menelik to Haile Selassie, Ethiopia remains a primary artery of Pan-Africanism thanks to the current government of Prime Minister Abi and his predilections uh, towards the integration and liberalization of Ethiopia along uh, with the rest of Africa. Abi's quest uh, to revive the spirit of Pan-Africanism has had far-reaching effects on economic integration, peace, and development in Africa. However, he has faced external and internal resistance compounded by foreign influence and sabotage from his predecessors, uh, which raises questions as to why such an exemplary leader would be discussed within global communities, not for his achievements, but for atrocities uh, in the ongoing Tigray crisis. The prime minister's treatment necessitates a deliberate investigation of this particular brand of Pan-Africanism, as well as various events uh, compounding uh, his woes not to mention the reasons uh, for the constant pressure from the West to negotiate uh, with the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front insurgents with apparently little regard for the potential implications of doing so. Transforming Ethiopia into a more united nation meant uh, that the economy uh, would have to be open to everybody. To achieve this, Abi dismantled the TPLF coalition in favor of a more inclusive party, his Prosperity Party was not well received by the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, the EPRDF. The EPRDF, a TPLF-led party, had controlled Ethiopia for 27 years and was made up of Tigrayans, an ethnic group that comprises only 6% of the total population. The formation of the Prosperity Party left TPLF proponents with a choice, support the new inclusive government or opt out. They chose the latter and their unwillingness to cooperate has been illustrated by their tireless work in instigating ethnic conflict and threatening uh, national security. Following this tension, uh, the TPLF ignored the postponement of the national and regional elections uh, by the Ethiopia's election commission due uh, to the COVID uh, pandemic and proceeded uh, with the election of a regional government. This escalation of tensions exploded into a civil war over a year ago, on November 4th of 2020, 
when TPLF uh, forces attacked a military base triggering Abiy's government to send federal forces. Sustained uh, provocation by the TPLF forced Ethiopia's national government to destroy uh, Tigray's weaponry near the regional capital of Makele. And a few days later, a full-scale civil war ensued. Since then, the death toll in the Tigray conflict has risen to at least 52,000 people, while the United Nations estimates that more than 61,000 Ethiopians have fled into Sudan. To a large extent, uh, this conflict stems from the TPLF's refusal to recognize the national government, uh, which is directly contrary to the spirit of Pan-Africanism, as is their separatist agitation and fomenting of ethnic conflict. Moreover, uh, the TPLF has thwarted Abiy's efforts to begin peace negotiations by rejecting the involvement of the African Union as negotiators a slap in the face for Abiy's instinct towards a pan-African spirit of unity and dialogue in solving African problems. Abiy's trajectory has followed the footsteps of Haile Selassie in championing pan-Africanism uh, through regional integration and advocacy for peace and unity among Ethiopians and the rest of Africa. Despite facing daunting challenges on the domestic front, Abiy has been instrumental in fostering peace and security in the Horn of Africa Upon his election, uh, he stated his willingness to negotiate and compromise to bring about the end of the Ethiopian-Eritrea border crisis. Abiy also helped broker a peace deal between other neighboring countries, notably easing the standoff between the South Sudanese Vice President Reich Machar and President Salva Kiir, and mediating between Kenya and Somalia in a protracted maritime dispute. By believing that charity begins at home, Abiy has widely promoted peace, reconciliation, and justice in Ethiopia. Even though he has a headwind to navigate, he lifted the state of emergency that existed in the latter stages of the TPLF's rule. He granted amnesty to political prisoners. He increased media freedom. He increased civil participation. He promoted the role of women in political life and reviewed civil law to expand freedom of expression. Abi can be seen as a liberal-minded person who believes in transparent and fair elections, clarifying why he was accorded a Peace and Reconciliation Award by the Ethiopian Church in 2018. In addition to introducing political reforms to Ethiopia, the Prime Minister's rhetoric of unity and progress for all citizens revitalized the spirit of Ethiopians that had been long suppressed over the previous 50 years. And uh, if you want to uh, read this article in its entirety, uh, all you have to do is log on to the Pan-African Newswire. And in other news uh, taking place uh, on the African continent, um, in Zimbabwe, uh, President Mnangagwa on yesterday said he used his United Kingdom visit to mount a diplomatic offensive aimed at strengthening the re-engagement drive while calling for the removal of sanctions. He returned home uh, yesterday, on Thursday uh, from his successful trip to the United Nations Climate Change Conference, the COP26, uh, which was held in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, where he met other global leaders to tackle issues uh, that, helped, that dealt with uh, climate change. It was the first time for a Zimbabwean leader to visit the UK after relations between the two nations were strained in the aftermath of Zimbabwe's uh, corrective land reform program in the early 2000s. Land reform saw Britain, America, and their allies imposing sanctions against Zimbabwe, including travel restrictions on the country's leaders. After landing at 
Sampolo Stadium in Lupani, Montebelli Land North, on his way to Lupani State University, where he officiated at the institution's 12th graduation ceremony. The president addressed Zano PF supporters who had come to welcome him at the stadium. He said he used the UK conference to push for the country to join the community of nations. He said he met several world leaders, including the United States President Joe Biden, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, President of the European Union Council Charles Michael, among other uh, global leaders. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal, and I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, in the West African state of Sierra Leone. An oil tanker truck exploded uh, near the capital of Freetown. It has killed at least 98 people and severely injured dozens of others after large crowds gathered to collect leaking fuel. Officials and witnesses uh, said earlier today the explosion took place late uh, Friday evening uh, when the tanker collided with another truck as it was east of the capital of Freetown, according to the National Disaster Management Agency. Both drivers came out of their vehicles and warned community residents to stay off the scene while trying to address a leakage emanating from the collision, the agency said. In the deeply impoverished country, however, crowds still rushed in to swoop up the fuel, our witnesses said. It was not immediately known what caused the leaking fuel to ignite, but a massive explosion soon followed. Video obtained by the international media showed a giant fireball burning in the night sky as some survivors had severe burns, cried out in pain. The charred remains of some victims lay strewn at the scene, awaiting transport to mortuaries. Nearly 100 injured people were taken to area hospitals, officials said. About 30 severely burned people at Conard Hospital were not expected to survive, according to Fode Musa, a staff member in its intensive care unit. Injured people... Uh, whose clothes had burned off in the fire uh, that followed the explosion, laid nude on stretchers as nurses attended to them earlier today. Hundreds of people milled outside the main gates of the mortuary and near the hospital's main entrance waiting for word of their loved ones. Uh, Usman Timbo said his 13-year-old brother, Muhammad, was among those who had died. He left home and said he was going to buy bread for us to eat, Timbo said. When I heard about the explosion, I went to the scene and I saw my younger brother lying down and he was burned all over. I felt so bad. I loved him so much. Hospital officials called in as many doctors and nurses as they could overnight to tend to the wounded. The country's healthcare sector is still recovering from the 2014 to 2016 Ebola pan- pandemic, which killed uh, many of the West African nation's uh, doctors and nurses. President Julius Maada Bao, who was in Scotland attending the United Nations climate talks earlier today, deplored the horrendous loss of life. He said that my profound sympathies uh, are with the families who have lost loved ones and that those who have been maimed as a result. Uh, He sent this out on his Twitter account. Vice President Mohamed Jodeh Jalo visited two hospitals overnight and said Sierra Leone's National Disaster Management Agency and others would work tirelessly in the wake of the emergency. He said that we are all deeply saddened by this national tragedy. He said 
on his Facebook page. And finally, in uh, the Republic of Sudan, the mass movement has rejected internationally uh, backed initiatives to return to a power-sharing arrangement with the military after last month's coup, announcing two days of nationwide strikes uh, that will start tomorrow. The movement called for the establishment of a civilian government to lead a transition to democracy. The call came as a leader of the country's main political party accused the military leadership of negotiating in bad faith. The Sudanese military seized power on October the 25th. They dissolved the transitional administration and arrested dozens of government officials and politicians. The coup has been met with international outcry and massive protests in the streets of Khartoum and elsewhere inside uh, this vast African state. The takeover has upended the country's fragile planned transition to democratic rule more than two years after a popular uprising forced the removal of longtime autocrat Omar al-Bashir and his Islamist government. Since the coup, the international community has accelerated mediation efforts to find a way out of the crisis, which threatens to further destabilize the already restive Horn of Africa region. The Sudanese Professional Association, which led the uprising against al-Bashir, said late Friday uh, that mediation initiatives would seek a new settlement between the military and civilian leaders would, quote, reproduce and worsen, unquote, the country's crisis. The association vowed to continue protesting until a full civilian government is established to lead the transition. Under the slogan of no negotiations, no compromise, no power sharing, the association, uh, which has a presence across the country, called for strikes and civil disobedience uh, for Sunday and Monday. On Thursday, the top U.S. diplomats spoke separately by phone with the military leader, General Abdel Fattah Burhan, and Abdallah Hamdak, uh, who is the deposed interim prime minister, uh, who has been placed under house arrest uh, since October the 25th. Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, urged for an immediate return to a civilian-led government and for the release of those detained in connection with the coup. Sudan state-run news agency uh, reported that Burhan vowed to, quote, complete the transition and preserve the country's security until reaching an elected civilian government. Al-Watig al-Barir, the Secretary General of the UMA Party, urged the international community uh, Friday to pressure the military to de-escalate. Since the coup, the generals have continued to dismantle the transitional government and arrest pro-democracy leaders. The UMA is Sudan's largest political party and has ministers in the now deposed government. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. We would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. Uh, it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 and has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, this edition 
of uh, the Pan-African uh, Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, November 6, 2021. Uh, just go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Uh, these programs can be shared with other potential listeners uh, by merely copying and pasting the links into emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. Uh, they can also be shared by copying and pasting links onto blogs and websites. Also, uh, the links can be shared uh, through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. This is Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
the uh, voice of Alice Clark uh, with the tune entitled I Keep It Hit. And uh, right now we want to move back into uh, looking uh, on the contributions of uh, Nana Kwame Ampadu uh, from Ghana, uh, who recently uh, joined the ancestors. Uh, he was, of course, the leader of the African Brothers Band International, uh, one of the leading uh, innovative uh, cultural uh, bands uh, in the West African state of Ghana. Uh, this is a uh, program uh, that dealt with the lifetimes and contributions of uh, Nana Kwame Amparu uh, that aired over Joy News Television in West Africa in the nation of Ghana. Uh, let's listen in. Coming to you live from this address, GA099-25390, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or join us on TV, or also live on DSU Channel 421, and go to Channel 144. Check out our YouTube stream on Join News Live. My name is Mapita CBD. This is Join News Interactive, a special edition, taking a look at the late Nana Ampedu's life. We'll be back after this.
On September 28, 2021, a dark cloud fell over the Ampedu family, over the entertainment industry and over Ghana as a whole. A son, a father, a brother, musician and legend had gone to meet his maker. Nana Kwame Ampedu was a high-life musician who died at the age of 76. He had been sick for 11 months according to his fourth son, Kwesi Ampedu, and he gives me detailed and detailed account how Ghana lost a legend when I went to the Ampedu residence yesterday. When, when, we, when we called the hospital or maybe somebody prominent like Nanampedu, you have seen that the ambulance is there. We've told you this person is in the ambulance and you are telling us that doctor is sleeping. No, these things must stop in Ghana. It, it should stop in Ghana. So I just need to understand and clarify quickly. So the ambulance did come, but it just came late. Late. It came late. And they, they were aware they are coming for such a great man. So they must do everything to come on time. If they had come on time, and if we have taken him on time, maybe they could have sustained him. father for the past let's say 11 months has been ill unfortunately uh, at dawn around 3 30 i had a call from my residence that uh, my father's illness has worsened so i and my brother should rush so that uh, we take him to the hospital we did so at dawn we tried as fast as possible and we went to the legend UGMC hospital uh, through 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 to the Achimata hospital which we couldn't find any assistance there so when you say you couldn't find assistance and what do you mean yeah when we went there the, the doctor was asleep we banged the door he came and he was rather asking us uh, why were we banging the door so much after he said he is coming and we said oh please we are not here for arguments we have a problem then he said oh, we don't have to tell him that we have a problem he already realized that we have a problem so we found out that we couldn't have any help there so we had to extend our journey to the legal hospital that's the UGMC hospital um, the doctors tried as much as they could to revive him but unfortunately we lost our father, Nana Kwame Ampedu. So today, as we speak, at the time of 5.24 a.m., today, Tuesday, the 28th of September, 2021, Ojuntufo Nana Kwame Ampedu is no more. So those were uh, some of the sons of the late Nana Ampedu giving me a detailed account of how they lost their father. But at the residence of the deceased filmmaker, Soccer Safa was there to pay his respects to the family. And when I asked uh, the movie producer what Ghana had lost or what the Ghanaian entertainment industry had lost, in one simple word he said, an institution. Take a listen. Can you just tell us about your relationship with the late Nana Ampedu? Well, I'll say that I am a filmmaker. Yeah. So my relationship mostly started from the political front. Okay. But before then, 
um, I was stealing from him. Yes, uh, as a filmmaker, um, sometimes I pick his uh, songs, mm -hmm. and it's mostly on stories. He likes writing about um, fa uh, fairy tales and things like that. So I pick some of his stories. Yeah. I steal them. Yeah. yeah. Until one day, I decided that um, let me come to him and seek his permission. Mm. I came, I confessed, and he just laughed. He said, well, I've been saying it, but I'm just proud that you are making use of my works. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, if you are here today, why not? Yeah. You can do it. Any song you want, mm -hmm. that you want to make a film out of, this, uh, out of it, mm -hmm. go ahead. That is why I am on earth, to yeah. educate. Yeah. So if you are going to pick the song and make a movie out of it, then go ahead. I mean, this uh, man composed like 800 songs or even more. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, even more. Yeah. Uh, what has the industry lost? An institution. Yeah. We've lost an institution. For me, if you ask me, we've lost an institution. But there is also the J. Adolfos and the rest who are also there with us now. I would like to see after Nana's barrier, mm -hmm. something will be done to keep records of what we, 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 we have left. Uh, Nana's demand should give us a wake-up call that uh, we should have a way of institutionalizing our legends in the arts. Because it looks like we only enjoy them while they are alive. When they go, then we forget about them. Well, artist manager Chrissy Ernest, who was also at the house, shares some lessons he learned from the high-life musician. I think that I learned a few lessons, and um, some of the lessons that I learned is that one, Nana will tell you, don't be a cheat. He will tell you, don't be greedy. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever your level, your size, Nana will see you, he want to hug you, he want to tell you stories, he want to, he want to tell you about himself, he want to tell you about Christ. Yeah. I mean, and, and he is one thing that everybody remembers him about, mm -hmm. that he never forgot forgot his God. Wherever he passes, he tried to make sure that Christ is mentioned. And I remember this one. I even have the footages which I will share with you. That when we went to Paris, that he, he performed in the Church of Pentecost, Paris Central Church of Pentecost. Nana performed. And you know one thing, when he was about to have the microphone, the, 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 the officiating pastor was a bit, he was, he was a bit confused yeah. as Nana Pedu coming to perform in Church of Pentecost. And so he took the microphone and said, I am one who. And then, gospel. And I'm telling you, in the whole church, the mood and everything, people were like, you know, this is the person we are talking about. Wherever he was, you will never see Nana frowning his face. You will never see him getting angry. At every time, he will advise you, he will educate you, he will share jokes with you, he will give you stories. I mean, he tells you stories about things. And me in particular, he, he shared with me, I remember in the flight, I started with him in one seat, and he told me how he started his music yeah. from Kwawu, how he got all started and everything. So, practically, yeah. this is the person we are celebrating. And so that's artist manager Christy Ernest. Now, Ghanaians are still uh, eulogizing the veteran high-life musician. We'll get some of those reactions on Twitter because he's still trending at number seven as we speak. But before we go to social media, let's go uh, to Zoom. And the music man, Kojo Entry, is joining me via Zoom. Good morning, Mr. Entry. Good morning. How are you? 
I'm doing great. Thank you. And how about you? I'm okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. And then we also yes. have uh, Adu Hafiz, who is a fan, and we'll speak okay. to him uh, very soon. Uh, we're also trying to get the acting president of uh, the Musicians Union of Ghana, uh, Uncle Bess. Uncle Bess will be joining us very shortly. But let me start with you. Mr. Music Man. Now, how did the news uh, come to you and how did you take it? Oh, well, I'm still in a shock, even though I knew uh, his situation because I visited him last week. Mm -hmm. I've been there about three times. Last week I was there with, a, with a, someone that ex-President uh, ex -President Kufu had sent mm -hmm. to go help, I mean, deliver something to Nana's family okay. so that they could use it in taking care of his situation. Yeah. So last week I was there. I was, me and I saw him. So, I mean, even though I knew how, how serious his situation was, I'm mm. still in a shock. All right. Now let's talk about your relationship uh, with uh, the late musician. How, how was that relationship? Give us uh, a view uh, of that relationship. Oh, I mean, Nana was uh was an uncle mm. i mean that's one thing i mean he is uh, it's a, a little bit far but he's an uncle he's from the same uh town like like me we are from ubu mm -hmm. and so he's someone that uh, i mean for me he's if i speak about my mentors mm. he is the number one as a child i used to sing all his songs at a certain time as a child when i was growing up i thought one day I was going to, uh, it was a dream to play in his band. Mm. And so for me, Nana, Nana was, uh, I mean, was everything that I wanted to be, like, selfless. Mm. And uh, I remember when I uh, became the, uh, the chairman of Gamro, mm. he was very vocal, he was very uh, uh, active in fighting that we, Gamro gets the recognition that he deserves. Mm. I mean, yeah. I won't be saying too much of it because people are saying all the nice things about him. And mm. Nana, Nana is more than an institution. I heard one gentleman say that Nana is an institution. I've, I've been saying it in my interviews yeah. that during the time that Walt Disney was animating some of these, uh, uh, I mean, uh, doing this animation of Donald Duck and the Tom and Jerry for the American market. Mm -hmm. We had someone here called Nanam Pedi who was giving us a full script. All we needed was to get someone, a young person from now to, to animate, animate some of the stories and we would, we would have had images and role models that looked like us, mm. you know, because Nana was giving us a whole script, you know, and he, he, he's one of the kind. I mean, I played with him. Mm -hmm. I performed with him at the Kempinski about uh, four or five years ago. Mm. And in the midst was uh, ex-president Kufour, Nanajima, and Kunedu Rawlings. Mm -hmm. He took the mic and started, I mean, words pours out of him. He can be on stage and just compose any song, make it songs out of everything. I yeah. mean, give him a word. Give him any topic, we'll make a song right there, spontaneously. He's one of the kind. I mean, 
He's one of a kind indeed. And you know, like you rightly mentioned, that someone said he's an institution and someone who needs to be celebrated. He's a legend. I mean, he's composed over 800 songs. And he, like you just said, that he gets on stage and compose a song. What do you think are some of the lessons uh, musicians right now, the generation right now, are churning out tunes? What are some of the lessons we can learn uh, from him? Well, I think, uh, luckily for us, he left us footprints. Those are his albums, his works mm-hmm. that we can listen to and uh, uh, tap from those, those uh, knowledge that he shared with us. Mm. Well, I heard one guy speak about uh, Jay Adoho and the rest. Yes, we have great guys like Jaco Nimo, Nana Pedu was one of them. Mm. These are people who are more than institutions. Yeah. You have the UN and other institutions recognizing them as such, but we are so close to them and we, we don't even get closer to them to tap into their knowledge, yeah. to tap into their experiences. Mm. And I think we should start doing that. Uh, we shouldn't, we should, Nana Ajako Nimo is also someone who keeps telling us, come to me, mm. I want to rub it on you, I want to share mm-hmm. those knowledge with you. I also want to learn from you. So yeah. it's up to us to tap into that knowledge, to tap to, because experiences are something that you cannot buy. Exactly. All Money right. cannot buy, priceless. Mm. All right, joining mm. me is as uh, acting president of Musical Vesa uh, Simons. Uncle Vesa, good morning. Uncle Bess, I'd like you to please unmute uh, yourself there. Thank you. I just did. Um, okay. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing, Uncle Bess? Well, I mean, we are all hanging in there by God's grace. Yeah. And I hope. All right. Now let's talk about your relationship uh, with uh, the highlight musician Nana Pedu. How, how was that like? Thank you very much. Good morning, Pedu, my brother. Um, yes, um, Nanam Pedu was one musician from Ghana that I personally have looked up to mm-hmm. and school days. Mm-hmm. I, I quite remember my school uh, when it comes to his music, it just it was so well main mm. at that time. the arrangement the lyrics everything and uh, he is a mu- one musician who always advises people not only through his music uncle best if you can reposition yourself for me it seems like we're losing you so if you can just try to reposition uh, y- yourself for me uh okay better because, yes yes um, yes that's better yeah 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 like i was i mean an is one musician that one musician that we all look up to. yeah he's he, if you're closer to him mm. he will ensure you are proud of your heritage yeah you is one uh, ambassador mm. her life ambassador from ghana who was in my life, me and musicians, all over the world. He and apart from his music, he did not like music for himself alone. Yeah. Nanam, music, 
worship. Yeah. Japan is written music that has been reported that we don't even know that he was the one who wrote us. Also, Uncle Bess, Uncle Bess, the network is terrible. I I literally can't uh, hear you. Let's uh, try it again. Uh, we'll call you on uh, via phone. Uh, let me go to one of his fans who's uh, do not see. Um, Uncle Beth, we'll try to uh, reach you via phone so that we can get a clear connection. But let me go to Adu uh, Nasir Ahmed. Uh, good morning, Adu. Good morning. Yeah, so uh, tell me about your uh, collection and your love for uh, the late musician. So, I, you know, I haven't grown up from... Uh, you know, my, my village, uh, you know, more, more often at times some of the songs that you listen to mm-hmm. obviously comes from the funeral grounds and, you know, you sort of grow up with these things and um, I think my favorite song has to be Mother, but then I think somewhere 2009, that was when I started buying songs online, that was when I first had my iPod touch and I think one of the first albums I bought was from the late Nanam Kadu, Abena which had a couple of songs on them mm-hmm. and I've been doing these collections across Africa, I mean, from Cameroon to Burkina Faso, Nigeria, and then Ghana. And I dare say that, yes, we have a lot of great high-life musicians, the likes of Lebo Taylor, we have Nana KJT, uh-huh. we have all these guys. But I will tell you that Ampadu's style of writing music is unparalleled. I, I don't think that there's anyone who actually writes music as much as Nana Kwame Ampadu. Yeah. And for me, um, having heard that, that news yesterday it was actually a friend of mine who tagged me on the on the post on twitter mm. just because he knows how much i love the man and i think it just hit home i do not think that we would have i don't think that we have anyone that writes has that writing style mm-hmm. i do believe we have very great musicians very great high still alive yeah. particularly in someone like robot taylor mm. but i dare say that when you look at the rankings i even though it's very difficult to say, I don't think there's anyone that is better than Nampadi in that regard. Okay. And we've, and we've lost a very, you know, an institution, as they said. And, and yeah. I hope that we can sort of do a lot of musical collections from these old chaps yeah. before we lose all of them as time goes on. All right. Thank you so much, Adu Nasir uh, Ahmed. Let me go back to Mr. Music Man, uh, if you're still with me. So a lot of people I was speaking to yesterday, they were sort of complaining uh, how we treat our legends right now. You know, uh, people on Twitter were even expressing their uh, opinions that, I mean, it seems like we only celebrate our legends when they die. You, as I speak to you right now, are a legend. You are a great man. You are the music man. Uh, Tell me your thoughts about this and how Ghana treats its legends. Oh, man. Unfortunately, uh, uh, we've lost uh, the music man. Okay, but let, let, let's go to um, Bester Simons. Uncle Bess, can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you. All right. Okay, so um, I was uh, posing a question to uh, Mr. Music Man, Kojo Entry, and people I spoke to yesterday, they were just complaining how we treat our legends today. Uncle Bess himself is also a legend. What are your thoughts on how Ghana treats its legends? Well, I mean... For me, um, I think what is happening is that, uh, for us, sorry, let me start for me. Uh-huh. Um, first of all, let me just uh, pay a little tribute to Nanam Pedu. Sure. Yes, Nanam Pedu is one authentic, original uh, musician 
whose style of writing is so unique mm. that nobody can copy him. Mm. And this is what, why we say he's such a great loss to the nation. I mm. mean, and he's a very proud Ghanaian high-life musician, and he never hides it. Wherever he went, he mm. mentioned it. Um, he believed in his heritage. Mm. And this is something we are not getting now. And for those of us who were close to him, and forever listening to his advice, mm -hmm. he always told us to believe in our high life music mm. and be proud of it because nobody can do it better than us from Ghana who have listened to this music from birth. Mm -mm -mm. That's him. He also served musicians. He is one of the pioneers who made sure music, Musicians Union was recognized in Ghana by the government and the whole nation. Mm -mm -mm. He was, and he also was an executive, he was uh, the general secretary at one point. Mm. And before God called him, he was the chairman for AMWEF, Aged Musicians Welfare Fund. Even yeah. on his sick bed, he would respond to calls and make sure he advised as such. Mm. Um, for me, the first high life I played in my school band those mm. days was the number this song, Ijankajie. And I still remember the song from note to note to the end. It was so made, so the arrangement, the lyrics. And is the person, he will come out to a meeting. Yeah. Whether we meeting the president of the land, vice president, or anybody, Nana has a story that will fit the occasion that everybody will go home with. Yeah. This is a man we, we, we can never replace. We've lost a lot. Now, coming to how we treat our legends, uh -huh. I think charity begins at home. Mm -hmm. From where we come from, me, my age group, up, up to a certain age group, you know, we respect our elders in music. Mm. When we see them, we, we know that if it wasn't them, we wouldn't be where we are today. Mm. And we, the respect we give is what I will ask every musician to give that same respect to our elders because they've got something that we need to learn. Okay. So Uncle that ben. we can, you know, uh, um, let people know where we have come from and where we are going. All right. Thank you so much, Uncle Bess. Unfortunately, due to time, uh, we can't continue okay. this conversation. Well, but you. I'd love to have a sit-down with you, and we can talk about uh, Nanampiri's life, thank amongst you. other things. Thank you so much we... for your time. All right, and that's how we enjoy News Interactive. Now, Ampedu was a great tree in the music forest. He leaves the earth, but his roots are centered in the heart of his family. His trunk of music will stay for generations to come, and his sounds will branch to inspire musicians alike. Rest in peace, Nana Kwame Ampedu. You are home now. My name is Mapisa Sibidi. Thank you so much for watching. Heroes of Change.
Welcome back, and uh, that was a tribute uh, to Nana Kwame Amparu, uh, the legendary uh, musician uh, from the West African state of Ghana. And uh, we're going to take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. That was uh, the music of Etta James, and I got you, babe. Uh, we're going to also, uh, at this time, uh, move into a examination of the current uh, situation in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia, uh, as we mentioned in the Pan-African Newswire segment, uh, and as we've been covering uh, over the last year uh, through the Pan-African Journal, as well as the Pan-African Newswire, uh, the Tigray People's Liberation Front has uh, launched a war against the central government in Addis Ababa. And, of course, uh, this is a discussion that we're about to hear that uh, attempts to examine uh, the various uh, sides of the conflict. Of course, uh, the U.S. role uh, should not be obscured. Um, they have been extremely hostile uh, to the Ethiopian government, uh, the government, previous government of Donald Trump, uh, as well as the existing uh, regime of Joe Biden. So let's listen uh, to this report 
on uh, the current internal conflict in the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia. Ethiopia's year-long war marked by extreme brutality from all sides involved. A UN probe finds evidence that may amount to crimes against humanity. As the nation enters a new state of emergency, what actions will be needed to bring an end to this conflict rather than further escalate the situation? This is Inside Story. Hello, welcome to the program. I'm Adrian Finnegan. A new turn in Ethiopia's year-long Tigray conflict is threatening to tear the country apart. Rebels from the northern region say that they've teamed up with a small faction within the ethnic group, the Oromo, and are threatening to advance towards the capital, Addis Ababa. The central government warns that the country is facing a grave danger to its existence and unity. It's announced a six-month state of emergency and urged people to take up arms and defend their neighborhoods. Tigrayan fighters have been pressing on with their campaign since they took control of the region in July. The government has launched a ground and air offensive in a bid to push them back. As we see here on the map we're about to show you, they're making their way from Tigray into the neighboring regions of Amhara and Afar and down the highway running south to Addis Ababa. Tigrayan fighters say that they took control of these towns this week, including Kambolcha. It sits on a supply line linking the landlocked nation to the seaport of Djibouti. In all of this, the UN has found evidence that all sides in Ethiopia's Tigray conflict have violated international human rights. There are some indications that those actions may amount to war crimes and crimes against humanity. The UN's human rights chief said that the year-long conflict has been marked by extreme brutality. We'll get to our guests in just a few moments, but first a report from Al Jazeera's Priyanka Gupta. These mass graves in Maikadra in northern Ethiopia unearth what the UN says could be war crimes committed in the Tigray conflict. A joint Ethiopian and UN human rights investigation says rebels from Tigray killed more than 200 ethnic Amharas here in November last year. The conflict has now expanded well beyond Tigray into neighboring Amhara and Afar regions. And it's been devastating for civilians. The UN report found in the year-long war, Eritrean soldiers who backed Ethiopia's federal army, as well as Ethiopian government soldiers and Tigrayan rebels, have committed widespread crimes, including rape, torture and killings of civilians. All parties to the Tigray conflict have committed violations of international human rights, humanitarian and refugee law. Some of these may amount to war crimes and crimes against humanity. Ethiopia's government has largely welcomed the report while expressing its serious reservations about aspects of the findings. It's promised to set up a task force to investigate the allegations, while rebels in Tigray said the report is flawed, citing the involvement of the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission. But on the ground, the conflict is intensifying. Tigrayan rebels say they have captured two northern towns on a major highway leading to the capital, Addis Ababa. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has urged Ethiopians to unite and fight against the rebels and has warned that attempts to make Ethiopia like Libya and Syria will not succeed. 
Abiy Ahmed, who was re-elected in a landslide victory in June, is facing mounting pressure to end the war from Ethiopia's largest humanitarian aid donor, the United States. As the war approaches its one-year anniversary, the United States and others cannot continue business as usual relations with the government of Ethiopia. The extraordinary partnership we have enjoyed is not sustainable while the military conflict continues to expand, threatening the stability and the unity of one of Africa's most influential countries. The Biden administration has suspended Ethiopia from a crucial trade agreement with the U.S. Well, it's a, a very significant uh, decision by the United States. It is important to understand that it hasn't happened yet. In other words, there's a, July, there's a January 1 date at which it may become effective if there is no movement towards peace uh, in Ethiopia. And if that happens, uh, I think Ethiopia is uh, likely to lose about a quarter of a billion dollars. And that could mean more hardship for Ethiopians. The UN investigation only looked into reports of abuse until late June, when the rebels regained much of Tigray. It does not include any attacks or civilian abuse since then. Priyanka Gupta, Inside Story. All right, let's bring in our guests for today's discussion from Addis Ababa. We're joined by Samuel Getachew. He's an independent journalist. In Nairobi is William Davison, senior Ethiopia analyst at International Crisis Group. And from Amsterdam, we're joined by Gebre Kirstos, Gebre Selassie, uh, who manages a website that documents the war on Tigray and tells the Tigrayan story. Welcome to you all. William, let's start with you. Just how dangerous is the current situation for Ethiopia, does it pose a threat to its existence, sovereignty and unity, as the Justice Minister has said? Well, certainly um, we're seeing a you know, serious threat to the federal government um, and its authority here. Um, and that is primarily because of the continued advances by the Tigray forces since July, primarily through eastern Amhara region. Um, as you've heard, um, recently they've taken control of Kambolcha and Desi cities. Um, this reflects just the latest in a series of battlefield victories, which have obviously weakened the federal military considerably after the federal military was pushed out of Tigray in June. This now puts the Tigray forces in a position potentially to head east to try and control the Djibouti corridor, Ethiopia's main trade route. They could then exert significant economic pressure on um, Addis Ababa and the leadership there, as well as potentially rerouting aid supplies directly to Tigray. They could also try and push southwards towards Addis Ababa itself. And there they have already established some sort of um, operational connection with the Oromo Liberation Army, the other armed movement, which is determined really to force uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and his government from power. Um, in response, we've seen a doubling down of positions um, from Prime Minister Abiy, um, from the Amhara government as well, all-out mobilization, all citizens being called to arms to try and prevent this advance of the Tigray forces. But that is not a new tactic. We have seen this type of mobilization over the last few months, and it has not been successful. There is no reason that that or this very sweeping state of emergency that's been put in place, which may well result in the mass arrest of Tigray and citizens, who are increasingly seen as collaborators with the Tigray forces. But there is no reason to think that that will actually turn the tide 
on the battlefield. Um, so really, it is an incredibly perilous situation for the federal government. And I think unless the federal leadership is able and willing to make some necessary con concessions here to the Tigrayan demands, particularly on the issue of the blockade, which is preventing humanitarian relief for Tigray, then we are likely to see a continued advance um, and all the potential destabilization um, for the government and the country at large that comes with that. Gebre Kirstos, um, would Tigrayan forces really march on the capital? Do they have the military strength and the support to take Addis? What are their aims, ultimately? Mm, well, um, they have stated their aims very clearly, I believe. Um, the, the main aim is to break the, the blockade. And uh, they have been adjusting their demands from uh, uh, the time they took uh, uh, Magala, and the government has refused it. And if they said, we, we are not going to just perish in blockade, we're going to try whatever it takes to break the blockade. And I think now, I believe they have uh, the, the ability to march on Addis, especially uh, after the uh, physical linking up with the uh, Oromo Liberation Army. And we have to remember that, you know, uh, the, the military is uh, really uh, broken down. I, I mean, um, they have brought the first, the, 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 the strongest uh, divisions to, to, to Grai, and they were decimated there. And now in Desi and Kombolcha, they have uh, really, they thought that was the final offensive, and they brought every force that they could, they could master to, to these regions, and they have been decimated there. So really, uh, I, I don't think... I don't think there is much uh, uh, military uh, resistance. Of course, like the government is doing now, they can feel, you know, the civilians. We are asking them to really die in thousands and stop the advance. But in terms of really conventional military engagement, I don't think the Ethiopian government has any options anymore. Samuel, what are we to make of the call, of, call to arms uh, by the government to the people of the capital? Uh, is it just scaremongering? What does the six-month state of emergency mean for people? How will their lives change under it? Well, Ethiopians, to begin, are um, used to this endless state of emergency that has been implemented even before this prime minister came to power. So we know how to live and exist uh, with endless uh, states of emergency. But what makes this different is the fact that the country is really, really hurting. I, I was in Afar recently, uh, in Abala uh, and Samara, and I was also in Amhara regions. Um, and I was in Tigray previously before, you know, uh, we were allowed to go and report from there. Um, what we're hearing, um, what Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch weren't really expressing was the fact that these crimes were happening by all actors. We've seen it. It's like a uniform-like allegations we've been hearing. Um, and Amhara, what, uh, you know, you can meet a young woman and she can say, you know, she was um, abused or sexually violated. And you would, you, her voice will be echoed when you go to Afar or Tigray. That's what's scary about what's happening in Ethiopia. It's not just the foreign investors that are fleeing from Ethiopia, which were important to the nation at one point, or the U.S. embassy saying all its citizens 
should leave Ethiopia because of the ongoing conflicts in the country. Everything that's happening in Ethiopia adds up. And what's really, really overwhelming is where this country is heading at the moment. William, we're going to have to assume here that people watching and, and listening to the podcast won't know the intricacies of Ethiopian uh, politics. What's it going to take to defuse the situation? What are the TPLF's demands? And are they unreasonable? Why is the government not willing to implement their demands? Well, yeah, clearly the demands are unreasonable from the federal government's perspective. But what um, are they? What are they, William? We have, we have the blockade issue. Um, which the, you know, the Tigray uh, leadership, they want unhindered aid access, the restoration of services to Tigray, uh, banking, telecommunications, and electricity. And then because of the way the war was conducted, because of the intervention that considered illegal by Tigray's leadership, they also want to remove future security threats to Tigray. Now, really, that means kind of decimating the Ethiopian military, which has been part of this offensive. There is also a very thorny territorial issue um, as the federal government withdrew after these defeats in June, that left Amhara region in control of western and southern Tigray. And they claim that is historic Amhara land, but it's been administered by Tigray during the federal period since 1995. Now, they have been pushed out of southern Tigray, but they remain in control of western Tigray. And the Tigray leadership is absolutely set on reclaiming that land from Amhara. There are also issues over the ability of, um, of Tigray to securely run a referendum potentially on, on a, you know, maybe on independence as a, as a nation state, which is a longer issue. So these are the types of demands. Um, but I think because of the ongoing conflict, because the federal government has classified the Tigray leadership as a terrorist organization, therefore they consider the, 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 the region to be run by terrorists, they're not willing to deliver aid without the, all these restrictions. They believe that it may be diverted. Um, perhaps they're just trying to subjugate and weaken the region. They've also not been willing to provide these services, um, again, because they consider the regional government illegal. Um, and then obviously, you know, the, the Tigray um, moves against the federal military to continue to try and weaken it is hardly something that the, 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 the powers that be in Addis Ababa are going to go along with. So these are the basic types of disagreements that exist now that are driving the conflict. And I think it's on the humanitarian aspect, if the federal government can finally prioritize that, um, which would also be seen as a concession to Tigray forces, then perhaps we could break this sort of deadlock or at least the, the sort of escalatory dynamics we have now with the Tigray forces continuing to push forward and increase the pressure on the federal government. But as I said in my first answer, so far there is no sign of that. We just have the federal government and, and, and its allies doubling down in terms of the all-out mobilization. And that is only likely really to incentivize the Tigray commanders to push forward um, even faster than they planned. Kevin Kirstos, we, we talked about how dangerous the situation is uh, for Ethiopia. Is it already too late for negotiations? Is there anyone with the authority uh, and, and respect to bring the two sides together? Or does there need to be some sort of military victory um, for, for one uh, side or, or the other before there can be talking? Well, I think it's already too late, and that is because, um, first, uh, we have to really uh, understand what happened in Tigray. It is a genocide that has been planned for a long time. So really, uh, I feel insulted when people compare it to what happens in Afar or in, in, uh, you know, in Amhara. This is not the same case. This is a genocide 
and the blockade is part of the genocide. In fact, they have, they have told everyone that their plan is to wipe uh, the people of Tigray out. They have told the European uh, envoy to the Horn of Africa. And this blockade is part of that. They are actually now saying, if, you, if, if we only prolong the war, then they will just perish in this blockade. So we have to understand that context. So the war, taking the war to Addis, is now important because those uh, that have uh, uh, planned and executed this genocide must be brought to justice. So there's no negotiation now. First, it's too late. We paid too much. Second, negotiation means there is no way that these people will be brought to justice. So these are very important things. And let's add to that that the international community has failed to deliver its responsibility. It can't even force uh, a humanitarian corridor for the Tigrayan people, which, as we speak, are dying you know, every day from starvation. So there's no option now, I think, than to uh, bring uh, the, the, the regime. The, by the way, we have to remember that this regime is an illegal regime. It's an illegitimate regime uh, with an illegitimate party and with an illegitimate uh, uh, election. So it has no legal right to rule. And it has it is uh, a criminal clique that has to be that has to be brought to justice. So these are important things to consider. And I think now it's already too late. In fact, the Tigrayan general, General Erkan, has said now the war is over. There's no point in negotiation, which basically uh, is, I okay. think, um, uh, what they are trying to do All to right, bring so it to an end. Samuel, what, what's what's your view on that? Is is it too late? And on, and on the accusations of, of, of genocide, the prime minister says the UN report dispelled what he said were false accusations of genocide against his government, but, but, but the UN says the Ethiopian government tried to limit the investigation, which, was, which of course was carried out jointly with Ethiopia's Human Rights uh, Commission. Are, are, are the victims of, of what the UN says is extreme brutality for all sides uh, likely ever to see justice? If you allow me to reply to your guest, if uh, the election in Ethiopia is legitimate, as he claims, uh, it wasn't perfect per se. Um, I think the election in Tigray had the same kind of standard, where no opposition was elected, uh, was won by 98-plus percent of the population that was claimed. The Ethiopian was 94 percent. So the two elections can always be debated. But if you're criticizing one, uh, you have to criticize both. But going back to uh, perhaps uh, a negotiation settlement, it's never too late. Uh, I mean, people are obviously dying. Uh, we talk about genocide in Tigray. The Amharas are talking about genocide that may have happened to them in, in their own regions. The Afaris are saying the same thing. There has to be some kind of understanding that too many people are dying in Ethiopia. Uh, whether you call it genocide or not genocide, the people on the ground just don't, I mean, their, their focus is to survive. People are still being killed, where the difference between one to the other is in terms of numbers. Uh, but again, um, I, I like, I've always enjoyed traveling outside of Addis Ababa. I've seen, I was able to speak to lots of victims, um, and they, they echo the same kind of allegations. And this kind of report is a down payment of the kind of report we need. Um, I don't know if Ethiopia or the UN or donors will, all, will find enough resources to investigate, but all kinds of allegations, whether you call it a genocide, 
it comes from all sides. William, is it too late for negotiations and what do you make of, of the UN's findings? Well, I think in terms of um, negotiations, the, the issue is, as, as, I, as I see it, it's, it's as described, really. I mean, you, you know, there's a good articulation of the, of the Tigran position from Gebekostos. So, you know, unless there are those types of really significant concessions um, from the federal government, um, you know, which, which might serve to pause the Tigrayan advance, the concessions in terms of the, particularly the humanitarian situation, the restoration of services, maybe the beginnings of a political amnesty for Tigrayan and, and Oromo leaders. Unless we get that, then I think the Tigray forces are going to push forward. And indeed, some of their commanders and leaders have said that there is no negotiating to be done with Prime Minister Abiy now. So it's certainly very late in the day. Um, and I don't think that um, I don't think without those concessions we're going to move the negotiations, but it's certainly the right thing to call for um, because there's all sorts of reasons to be concerned uh, about what could result from a, you know, a, a Tigray push combined with the Oromo Liberation Army to, to Addis Ababa. We should look at the state of Amhara region. I mean, it, Amhara region would basically be in total rebellion to any new interim government that was formed okay. of the Tigray leadership and the Oromo Liberation Army. Um, with regards to genocide, I mean, we've, we've all read um, the report now. Um, we've seen the media reports. We know that uh, you know, severe abuses have been com committed by the Eritrean forces, by federal forces, by the Amhara. The report talked about uh, 600,000 Tigrayans leaving Western Tigray. It also talked about um, abuses by Tigrayan militia as well. Um, I think you know, clearly there's been very severe restrictions placed upon the region in terms of those services, trade, and aid. That seems to be a deliberate policy by the federal government. Um, uh, but I, I and my organization are not in a position to call genocide. That is up to the human rights investigators and up to the international okay. lawyers. Gebre uh, Kirstos, what's it going to take to end the suffering uh, of people in Ethiopia? Um, I'd like to say a little bit uh, uh, on the uh, uh, report that, that uh, they call it a joint investigation uh, uh, by the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission and the, um, uh, the UN uh, uh, Human Rights Commission. I think uh, from a Tigrayan perspective, I find it an insult. And this is because you don't allow the very perpetrator of the crimes to be part of the investigation. Nowhere in the world should you do something like this. This is what they have done. Uh, so it's really wrong on methodology, and it, it fails the but bare minimum. Gary Kirstos, as I understand it, the only way that the UN could get in there to investigate uh, was to have it as a, as a joint investigation. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been allowed to, to, to go in. I mean, that's, I think, le, le, that's a valid point. But uh, just to, to, for that point, you don't make a uh, report okay. that basically really whitewashes the crimes of the, the, the regime and also really, really uh, hurts their victims uh, again. Yeah. That we feel as Tigrans really uh, being hurt again by this investigation. Okay. So, well, I, and it hasn't even included really the main uh, massacre scene. All right. And, I, and this is really very sad. I'm sorry to, but, uh, to cut you short. I'm sorry to cut you short. We're, we're almost out of time. I just want to, I want to get Samuel's uh, uh, reply to, to what you just heard there. 
You know, uh, going back to compromise, uh, Ethiopia, as has been highlighted by the spokesperson of the foreign, uh, the, state, the State Department in Washington, D.C., it's an important nation. It needs world leadership to end what's been happening in this country. Canceling a trade agreement with the U.S. is going to wipe out hundreds of thousands of jobs. Um, people are dying. There has to be an international leadership to end what's happening in Ethiopia. Too many people are just being killed, and everybody is cheerleading from one side and just focusing on this ethnic warfare we've been seeing in Ethiopia for many, many years. We are out of time. Many thanks indeed for being with us, gentlemen. Samuel Getachew, William Davison, and uh, Gebre Kirstos, Gebre Selassie. Uh, and thank you for watching. Don't forget you can see the program again anytime just by going to the website at aljazeera.com. For further discussion, join us at our Facebook page. That's at facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. And you can join the conversation on Twitter, our handle at AJ Inside Story. From me, Adrian Finnegan, and the whole team here in Doha. Thanks for watching. We'll see you again. Bye for now. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report uh, from Inside Story uh, in regard uh, to the current uh, internal Ethiopian conflict. Uh, however, uh, there was no mention of the external uh, intervention uh, in Ethiopia. Uh, just at the end, uh, they mentioned uh, the cancellation of the America Growth and Opportunity Act uh, policies uh, related uh, to Ethiopia that it will destroy a lot of jobs. And, of course, the United States uh, made that decision, and they have been backing uh, for the last um, more than three decades the TPLF uh, in uh, Ethiopia. So, uh, of course, uh, they have left out a lot of information, uh, but you can find out more uh, from the perspective of the Ethiopian government and others uh, by reading the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.com. .blogspot.com. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment uh, for today.
China Global Television Network. Gunmen kill at least 20 people in an attack in northwest Nigeria. DRC declares three days of mourning as over 100 people are feared dead or missing after a boat capsized along a river Congo. And the U.S. and Taliban meet for the first time since the end of the Afghan war. Welcome to Africa Live on CGTN with me, Beatrice Marshall, in Nairobi. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Welcome to The World Today. I'm Richard Ntai, Nairobi. Here's what's ahead. Dozens of people killed in a fuel tanker blast in Sierra Leone's capital. The UN Security Council calls for an end to Ethiopia's fighting this as opposition groups form an alliance to oust Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. And tens of thousands march in Glasgow against climate change. 
Once again, welcome to the world today. We begin in Sierra Leone where dozens of people have been killed after a fuel tanker exploded. A state-run morgue has received at least 91 bodies. Official reports several people are in critical condition. The Director of Communications for the National Disaster Management Agency, Mohamed Lamrain Ba, says rescue efforts have ended. Video footage of the blast has been circulating on social media. Families are seen looking for their loved ones as several badly burned victims lay on the streets of Freetown. The Friday incident happened in a suburb of the capital Freetown after a truck carrying fuel collided with another truck. Well, for the latest on the situation in Sierra Leone, we spoke to Eric Kawa, a freelance journalist based in the capital, Freetown. Media houses are reporting that 84 people at least lost their lives, and as well, many more uh, updates are on the social media. You can hear people say hundreds more, but it was a really serious issue, and people have been moved to the nearby hospital, which is the satellite hospital at Rokupa nearby, and also so others have been referred to the Connaught Hospital and other hospitals so far. So it is really indeed an unfortunate incident that happened in the late hours of yesterday. So yes, uh, many actions are on the way to see how much more the situation can be put under control. But then, of course, it's unfortunate. But we saw the mayor of Freetown who made a statement yesterday uh, sympathizing with the people who lost their lives. And of course, she also noted that the uh, deputy was also at the scene to see how much more they could help in terms of giving uh, emergency responses and of course the head of the national disaster uh, response team was also there who uh, um, was also there to see how much more they could put the situation under control and that is a very busy place where uh, maybe not all the residents of that locality were actually um, affected because it's like a transit point from one point to another people might be there uh, doing business others are there waiting to uh, get some connecting uh, transportation to go to other areas. Now is the time when probably you see many people are coming from work and heading to, uh, to their different homes. So that was indeed a very unfortunate uh, incident and we hope that authorities can see what more they can do to see uh, at least um, probably in terms of the response for the fire service could be timely and maybe get enough fire services because that is one thing that is lacking. We don't have many fire services as could be expected. So with more fire services, by the time they could be at the locations, uh, maybe many things have happened. So this is something that should also be taken into consideration by probably the National uh, Fire Service and other authorities that are concerned. In Ethiopia, there's growing fear that civil war is escalating. The UN Security Council says it's deeply concerned about intensifying clashes. Nine opposition groups have formed an alliance to oust Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and seek a political transition. The Tigray People's Liberation Front, along with eight other groups, announced their goals as African and Western leaders join calls for a ceasefire. The alliance says it will seek a political transition by force or negotiation. We have agreed, among other things, to establish a joint command responsible for all-round engagements and to work jointly towards an all-inclusive national dialogues and the establishment of transitional arrangements with the view of addressing the political crisis affecting the country. Additionally, we have agreed to synchronize and share our human and material resources as is required to expedite the struggle against the tyrannical regime and to jointly work in apprehending and bringing 
to justice those officials of the region and its collaborators in the gross human rights violations and genocidal crimes. And for more on this, let's go live to Gurum Chala in Addis Ababa. Gurum, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Now, Gurum, who are the nine rebel groups in the alliance, and what is the government's response? Well, the rebel groups, uh, uh, as you have said, are majorly containing groups like the uh, Oromo Liberation Army or, or, or OLF, and the TPLF and others from different parts of the country. They like to call themselves Federalist and Non-Federalist uh, Force, and uh, they are based uh, mostly in the United States uh, of America. Government officials' response, uh, especially the authorities we try to speak to from the Foreign Ministry and also around the Prime Minister's office, uh, have generally said these are a group of jokers who are trying to uh, claim something that doesn't exist. This is a government for uh, out of a fair and square election which was held just months back in September. Prime Minister Abiy uh, Ahmed and his cabinet were endorsed by the country's parliament. How are they planning to take away many hundreds uh, of millions of people's votes uh, and try to establish a government according to them by force? Uh, so this is the kind of response that we're hearing. Ethiopians are also taking the matter into social media uh, and are uh, commenting on it. Most people, I can tell you that uh, uh, they are not uh, really taking this matter seriously. But all in all, we have to understand that the political situation in the country is not uh, something that uh, to, to play with as uh, things are now shifting uh, to the battlefield because uh, security comes uh, first to stabilize the country. So whether there is a grouping in, in, in America or here, the first priority, especially to benefit the people, uh, should be uh, coming together for the peace of the country. That's according to most people we speak to uh, at the side of the city. Well, Garum, on top of what you've just said, the Prime Minister, listen to this, has called on citizens to take up arms to defend the capital. I can only imagine what the atmosphere is like over there. How do you see it, Garum? Across the country, Thousands and thousands of people are now marching out on the streets, out in the stadiums and squares, supporting this call. You might have seen it in different platforms, and we're also repeatedly reporting this since uh, three days back and since the Prime Minister made that call. Protect, defend the sovereignty of Ethiopia by your blood, through arms, join the army so that the territorial integrity of Ethiopia can be intact. So the response has been over, overwhelming. We're observing here in Addis Ababa as well, uh, thousands of people are being enlisted. Hundreds are already in, in different camps. Uh, they were sent off uh, last uh, two days. So you can, say, you can see that uh, the response is uh, very overwhelming, very positive uh, from the people's side, uh, replying for the call that you have just mentioned from the Prime Minister to defend their country. All right, Gurum Chala, let's leave it there for now. Thank you for uh, keeping us up to date with the very latest. Now, Ethiopia continues to beef up security under a state of emergency that it says is targeted at averting, averting threats by the Tigray's People Liberation Forces and its affiliate groups. Citizens are on high alert as they are also stepping up community surveillance. Coletta Wanjui reports from Addis Ababa. From here, we can get a glimpse of some parts of, uh, or some streets in the city. It seems like a normal day for many people and traffic moving freely. There is no panic buying, at least in the shopping areas that I've visited. 
although some friends have said that they are stocking up on essential items gradually, just as a precaution. Night activities in the city are reducing, uh, with many preferring to rush home as soon as they can. Security has been heightened. We have seen security officers doing house-to-house -house checks. Some foreigners are leaving the country, some out of their own decision, while others because of advice from their employers and embassies. Others have decided to stay and analyze the situation first. The government has downplayed threats by the Tigray People's Liberation Front and its affiliate groups that they will enter the capital city, Addis Ababa. But everybody here is highly cautious. A new alliance of anti-government parties has threatened to oust Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed or to push for negotiations for a transitional government, opening up for more spe uh, speculation on how events may unfold in the coming days. Collector Anjohi, CGTN, Addis Ababa. The UN Climate Change Summit is halfway through in Glasgow. The weekend land use and world food systems are under the microscope. 45 countries have already agreed to cut emissions by land use change and tackling unsustainable farming. Farming and deforestation account for nearly 25 percent of the global carbon emissions. The countries say they plan to leverage over $4 billion of new public sector investment into agricultural innovation. The UK Environment Secretary says food systems and the way we manage ecosystems require urgent transformation. Climate activists are expected to hold protests in Glasgow today. The protests take place on a global day of action against climate change. A crowd led by Swedish teen activist Greta Thunberg will be marching to the city for a rally. Thunberg will address tens of thousands of climate campaigners, including local community groups, trade unions, and climate and environment organizations. The rally in Glasgow is alongside demonstrations in towns and cities across the world. Meanwhile, the United Nations Climate Conference, known as COP26, continues in the Scottish cities. If we actually do reach net zero, when we do, Earth's temperatures will stop going up with a lag time of as little as three to five years. It is as if we can throw a switch and save the future of our civilization. Pfizer says its anti-COVID pill can reduce the chances of hospitalization or death by 89% for adults at risk of severe illness. The trial results suggest the oral drug outperforms Merck's pill, which just won Britain's approval to treat mild to moderate patients. The Pfizer trial ended early due to its high success rate, and U.S. President Joe Biden says the government has secured millions of doses of the Pfizer pill. Well, that's it for this edition of The World Today. Remember, I'll be back shortly with more news from the continent in Africa Live. Thanks for watching. Stay tuned.
but at the same time, it's exciting. It's new. It's different. It's a challenge. It's really exciting. GTN, China Global Television Network. Sierra Leone wraps up a rescue mission after Friday's fuel tanker explosion that killed dozens and left critical injuries. The UN Security Council calls for an end to Ethiopia's fighting. And in Niger, male contestants showcase their best attributes to a female jury. Hello and welcome to Africa Live. As always, great to have you with us. I'm Richard and Ta live in Nairobi. And for those of you joining us from across the continent and around the globe, we thank you for joining us. Let's take a look at other stories making headlines this hour. South Africa announces successful bidders in its latest round of renewable energy projects. And in sports, Nigeria's UFC welterweight champion Kamuro set for a fight against Covington in New York. Once again, welcome to Africa Live. Great to have you along with us for this hour. We begin in Sierra Leone, where dozens of people have been killed after a fuel tanker exploded. A state-run morgue has received at least 91 bodies. Officials report several people are in critical condition. Director of Communications for the National Disaster Management Agency, Mohamed Lamra Ba, says rescue efforts have ended. Video footage of the blast has been circulating on social media. 
families are seen looking for their loved ones as several bodies burned lay on the streets of Freetown. The Friday incident happened in the suburb of the capital, Freetown, after a truck carrying fuel collided with another truck. Well, for the latest on this situation in Sierra Leone, we spoke to Eric Kawa, a freelance journalist based in the capital, Freetown. Let's take a listen. Media houses are reporting that 84 people at least lost their lives, and as well, many more uh, updates are on the social media. You can hear people say hundreds more, but it was a really serious issue, and people have been moved to the nearby hospital, which is the satellite hospital at Rokupa nearby, and also so others have been referred to the Connaught Hospital and other hospitals so far. So it is really indeed an unfortunate incident that happened in the late hours of yesterday. So yet, uh, many actions are on the way to see how much more the situation can be put under control, but then, of course, it's unfortunate, but we saw the mayor of Freetown who made a statement yesterday uh, sympathizing with the people who lost their lives, and of course, she also noted that the uh, deputy was also at the scene to see how much more they could help in terms of giving uh, emergency responses, and of course, the head of the National Disaster uh, Response Team was also there, who uh, um, was also there to see how much more they could put the situation under control. And that is a very busy place where uh, maybe not only residents of that locality were actually um, affected because it's like a transit point from one point to another. People might be there uh, doing business, others are there waiting to uh, get some connecting uh, transportation to go to other areas. Now is the time when probably you see many people are coming from work and heading to, uh, to their different homes. So that was indeed a very unfortunate uh, incident, and we hope that authorities can see what more they can do to see uh, at least um, probably in terms of the response for the fire service could be timely and maybe get enough fire services because that is one thing that is lacking. We don't have many fire services as could be expected. So with more fire services, by the time they could be at the location, uh, maybe many things have happened. So this is something that should also be taken into consideration by probably the National uh, Fire Service and other authorities that are concerned. In Ethiopia, there's growing fears that civil war is escalating. Nine opposition groups have formed an alliance to oust Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and seek a political transition. The rebels say they will do so by force or negotiation. T-Rise People's Liberation Front, along with eight other groups, announced their goals as African and Western leaders join calls for a ceasefire. The UN Security Council says it's deeply concerned about the intensifying clashes. For more on this, let's go live to Groom Chala in Addis Ababa. Groom Chala, welcome to the program. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us. Now, the Prime Minister has called on citizens to take up arms to defend the capital. What's the atmosphere like over there? From Adisaba city, the capital, to the largest regional state, Oromia, southern regional state, Sidama, and in others, the situation is similar, Richard. Thousands and thousands of people are coming on the streets over the last three days, including today, and are expressing solidarity with the government and are responding to the call of the prime minister. As you remember, the prime minister was saying that people need to come out and defend the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ethiopia. They should be enlisted and be part of the Ethiopian National Defense Force. But in general terms, uh, people are 
doing just that, being enlisted, and some are even uh, going uh, to different training camps for that purpose. But how is the atmosphere in general terms? Let's just take a listen. Hundreds of thousands converged along streets, stadiums, and public squares across Ethiopia. They were here in solidarity with the federal government and echoing their resentment against the TPLF. People here say that 27 years of a TPLF-led leadership no longer had a place in the current Ethiopian political landscape. Everybody is chanting in one voice and responds to the government's call. This is intended to save our country from the brink. We do not wish to see a return of any past regime. We would like to sustain the already existing change. So people are united for a national cause and only we can decide our fate. I say whatever is being done here is just to warrant our peace. We all have responsibilities and make sure we okay our respective roles. We will never want to repeat the past. Never. I say what we are doing is correct. And following the call by the Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, urging citizens to fight and defend the sovereignty of the nation, thousands of nationals turned out to be enlisted into the army. People say they will continue responding to the government's calls until peace is achieved. Young or old or anyone else must fight for the freedom of our nation. This is not something one negotiates about. There I say we all head to the battlefield. You know what this is, the only country we have and we are ready to defend her at any cost. It is mandatory for us to voluntarily join the army. We've had people heading to the camps from Addis Ababa just the other day, and the young people from different regional states are also being enlisted. This is what must happen at this crucial moment in our history. It's been days since the nationwide state of emergency was declared. However, daily life in the capital Addis Ababa remains largely calm and uninterrupted. People continue their daily activities. We have, however, seen random checkpoints to bolster security as police search cars and people, especially at night. Richard, on the other hand, uh, the United Nations, uh, through the Security Council, the U.S., European Union, the African Union Commission, the Regional Authority, IGAD, all are calling for peaceful resolution of this conflict and the end of the war so that the TPLF and others can come together with the central government and resolve it once and for all. That is supposed to happen in the next perhaps a few days or, or weeks. But the Ethiopian government has come up with a precondition saying that for a talk to begin, TPLF and its force need to withdraw from Amhara and offer regional states, put down their arms, then we can discuss negotiations. For now, this is what we know. Back to you. All right, Guru, important point that you've made there. Speaking of the UN Security Council, uh, it says it's seriously concerned about the impact of the war on Ethiopia's humanitarian crisis. How dire is the situation? Richard, unfortunately, I have to confirm to you that the humanitarian situation, especially in the Afar, Amhara, and Tigray regional states, remain to be dire and getting worse by the day. One of the worst parts of a war, as you might understand, is it's going to, it affects so many people. Millions of people are already in the hands of humanitarian services for daily lives. Uh, and now the war has escalated. It has come 
to places like Kobolta and Desa. And you can imagine how many people are falling victim again. So the humanitarian situation was already worse. and It was already dire, but it's, it's getting worse and worse by the day as well. So the international community is uh, concerned and it was concerned before. Ethiopian authorities are also saying that the continuation of the war is affecting our own citizens. So we want the end of this war. We want TPLF to stop uh, fighting and return to uh, its uh, localities. Uh, TPLF is also blaming the government of blocking aid. All in all, however, people are being affected. Martin Griffin, a uh, uh, higher official from the United Nations Humanitarian Services, was talking to the Prime Minister, the, for the Foreign Affairs Minister himself, to facilitate humanitarian aid. But the continuation of the war, I must tell you, is really hindering uh, so many things, including delivery of food aid. Richard. All right, Grumchala, thank you so much for staying on top of that story for us. Uh, moving along, here is Dr. Hassan Kanenje, the director of the Horn of International Institute for Strategic Studies on the unfolding situation in Ethiopia. I think we are staring at a potential collapse of the government in the wake of very rapid uh, rebel uh, advances, as well as increased alliances against uh, the Abiy Ahmed administration. Uh, second, I think we are looking at a potential uh, very massive humanitarian crisis that we have not seen in this region in recent years. Barring uh, any serious external intervention, it's unlikely that we're going to see a dialogue by the parties themselves. In part, uh, because on the one hand, there's a rebel calculation of potential victory, especially in the wake of advances that we've been able to make uh, towards uh, trying to, 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 to remove Abiy's administration. But secondly, uh, there's also a calculation on the government side or a desire to try and reclaim some of the Basilevid advantages they've been able to lose or to seek the rebels before perhaps any form of dialogue can be able to be initiated. Ethiopia has been the seat, of course, of the African Union, but it's also one of the anchor states that's been critical in peace and security in the region. Uh, and so, its absence also means that those aspects are going to be affected, including efforts to stabilize Somalia, as well as the counterterrorism efforts that are critical, especially in trying to get rid of international terror. Uh, also, there is a danger of proliferation of small arms and light weapons, as well as, of course, a potential humanitarian catas catastrophe that may affect not just uh, countries neighboring Ethiopia, but countries in much of the continent, pushing refugees probably all the way to Europe and elsewhere. And so it is a matter, I think, of urgency that action is taken now and not later. The news continues on Africa Live. We'll see you on the other side of the break with more news stories. Here's what's ahead. Tens of thousands to march in Glasgow against climate change. And in Niger, male contestants showcase their best attributes to a female jury. Welcome back to Africa Live. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, the United U UN Climate Change Summit 
is halfway through in Glasgow. The weekend land use and world's food systems are under the microscope. 45 countries have already agreed to cut emissions by land use change and tackling unsustainable farming. Farming and deforestation account for nearly 25% of the global carbon emissions. The countries say they plan to leverage over $4 billion of new public sector investment into agricultural innovation. The UK Environment Secretary says food systems and the way we manage ecosystems require urgent transformation. Thousands of climate activists are expected to hold protests in Glasgow today as COP26 continues. The protests take place on a global day of action against climate change. A crowd led by Swedish teen activist Greta Thunberg will be marching to the Scottish city for a rally. Thunberg will address tens of thousands of climate campaigners, including local community groups, trade unions, and climate and environment organizations. The rally in Glasgow will be alongside demonstrations in towns and cities across the world. Kenya has renewed its pledge to hasten progress towards carbon neutrality to avert a climate crisis. The country hopes to achieve this through a range of measures. One among them is promoting low-carbon hotels. Embo River is the first hotel in the Masai Mara National Reserve using electric safari vehicles. CGTN's Joey Karuki-Juma with the details. Tourists from all over the world visit Kenya's Masai Mara to sample its wild animals. The noise produced by the safari vehicle engines, though, is considered a nuisance for the animals. These vehicles also generate emissions. But the game reserve is now boasting of a cleaner alternative. Electric vehicles, which are silent and do not have exhaust fumes. The differences between the engine car and the electric car is just like a day and night mm. because the electric car are friendly to the environment, mm. friendly to the, to the animals. Mm. Um, you've got driving around, you, you, you get close to the animals mm. without, and you get away from them without disturbing them. According to the Kenya Tourism Board, Mbor River is the first safari camp in East Africa that has gone fully carbon neutral. The camp gets its electricity supply from solar panels. This is where we get all our sole generation of um, the power or energy that we use in the camp. This is enough for us uh, for our consumption uh, in the camp and also for charging the electric vehicles. In addition to the use of clean energy, the hotel also uses a water circulation system. This is our lagoon. This is our water purification system. And um, it actually receives water from the tents and from all the toilets um, that will be within the area, uh, mm. which one of the toilets is a public toilet here. And the plants here actually are the plants from the Mara. Um, we found in um, the wetlands all around the Masai Mara. And uh, it actually does the job that we wanted them to do. So mm. it purified and sanitized the gray and black water, and then we reuse it again. Carbon neutrality practices that are hoped will add up to the bigger picture of averting a climate crisis in the long run. Joy Kiruki Juma, CGTN. Let's head over to Niger to a rather unusual beauty pageant. Every year, young men from the Wudabe ethnic group showcase their physical features in front of an all-female jury, hoping to eventually find a suitor. Let's take a look. 
Beji and his friends are putting the finishing touches on their outfits. They're preparing for a traditional beauty contest known as the Gerawal. This pageant is not like many others. It comes with a twist. The men from the Wudabe ethnic group in Niger dress up and compete. A jury comprising of all women then pick the winner. The women choose the men because only a woman can identify the most handsome, the most slender, and the one with the most beautiful eyes. For marriage, it is us women that choose our husbands. The contestants dance for hours for the women who judge the men's suitability as lovers or husbands. Beji is optimistic about his chances of winning the annual contest this year. This time I think I'm going to win because my friends here are old, their time has passed, whereas I'm very young and I am handsome. To attract the attention of the jury, the men must also be tall and slender, have facial symmetry and good teeth. Each member of the jury chooses her favorite contestant and can take him as her lover, even if both are already married. If there are handsome men, women will choose them to get married. Women choose who they want to get married with. During the festival, we choose the most handsome men, but also our husbands. This time round, Beji finished in fifth place. He was, however, chosen by a member of the jury to spend some time with and get to know each other. The festival also marks the end of the rainy season and the start of the dry season transhumance migration for the nomadic Wudabe people. Lindim Tongana, CGTN. The fossil remains of an early hominid child have been discovered in a cave in South Africa in the Rising Star Cave at the Cradle of Humankind. A team of international and South African researchers announced the discovery of a partial skull and teeth of a Homo naledi child who died almost 250,000 years ago when it was approximately four to six years old. CGTN's Yulisa and Jamela has more. According to a team of international researchers, the remains were found in a remote part of the cave, and that suggests the body had been placed there on papers in what could be a kind of grave. We discovered a beautiful skull of a child. And this is a reconstruction of that child. The child was a fragmented parts of a skull. The frontal bone areas, all critical areas of anatomy, adult teeth that had yet to erupt, and deciduous teeth or juvenile teeth that were already erupted and being in the process of being pushed out. This material was then studied by our teams and we realized it was a four to six year old child. The latest discovery has been named Little Leti. It's from a Sitswana word Lidimela, which means lost one. Otherwise the teeth are consistent in size, shape and morphology with the other homonaledi specimens from the Dinaledi and Lacetti chambers. The consistency and lack of variation at sites within the whole rising star system suggests we're likely looking at a population of related individuals that use the cave to deposit their dead. A replica of the skull was created from the pieces found on a ledge in the deepest reserves of the cave system. The team of researchers says this discovery is related to Homonaledi. Homonaledi is a species of an archaic human discovered in the Rising Cave in 2015. 
And we also leave all of us with a mystery. A mystery of why was little Letty left in this deep, dark place. And hopefully as we continue to explore and continue to make discoveries, we may reach a point where we can confidently say to you that we have found a non-human species of ancient human relative. 1,550 specimens from at least 15 Homo naledi individuals were recovered from the same cave system between 2013 and 2014. The researchers say exploration continues with more secrets likely to be revealed. Secrets that may make humans change the way they view themselves. Yulisan Jamela for CG2N in Johannesburg, South Africa. All right, time now for a short break. We've got your business news coming up. Don't go away. Here's a peek at the headlines. Kenyan shilling weakens sharply against the U.S. dollar. And South Africa announces successful bidders in the latest round of renewable energy projects. Africa is a continent of diversity, with varied climates and enchanting geographies, and a people so distinct but with a shared enduring spirit. We are at the heart of the continent to bring you the untold stories. Let's have a look. We celebrate Africa as it shapes its own destiny. Africa Live. Find your voice. Africa is the nexus of enterprise, and global business will tell you why it matters. From the mega investment projects to multi-billion dollar mergers and acquisitions. Africa today collects, just in terms of revenues from taxes alone, $545 billion a year. If you take 10% of that and you devote it to the energy sector, problem solved. All this on Global Business, weekdays at this time on CGTN. Since 2018, more than 450 companies from 50 African countries have participated in China's International Import Expo in Shanghai. This year, the number is expected to be higher. Let's bring in Ken Kachinga, Chief Economist and CEO of Mentoria Economics Kenya. He joins us from Nairobi. Ken, welcome to the program. CII, CIIE has grown into a key channel for products worldwide. How can Africa maximize on the benefits of the exhibition offers? Ken? Many thanks, Richard. Indeed, the CIIE, the China Import Expo, uh, the first of its kind in the world, uh, was designed to help China to bridge trade with the rest of the world, uh, particularly with uh, African countries and other countries. For example, if you look at trade between Kenya and China, um, it, Kenya imports almost $3.9 billion worth of produce from China, but only exports uh, possibly $100 million uh, to China. So that great imbalance is what is one of the motivating factors. Now, I think African countries have started to 
take advantage of this opportunity to sell their products into China. Uh, but I think the challenge is uh, many countries use it as a one-off opportunity. I think what needs to happen is countries need to have a China strategy, a long-term China strategy, given that China is a vast economy with many opportunities. Most countries in Africa need to have a proper China strategy that looks about um, understanding the history, the culture, um, exchange programs, uh, being able to really uh, bridge that level of information between the two countries um, so that we can have long-term meaningful progress. All right, Ken, let's stay on that and unpack that a little more. You've talked about the import-export disparity. As you know, one key challenge for Africa has been the production quantity and quality when exporting to China. How can this challenge actually be addressed, Ken? Well, indeed, uh, there have been uh, some challenges if you look at the agricultural produce um, sector. Um, one of the challenges has been for African businesses to adapt what they call phytosanitary standards that meet the Chinese market. So I think there has been a bit of tightening uh, of the protocols are required to uh, meet those standards. Um, farmers have been educated. And if you look at, for example, here in Kenya, where we're exploring the possibilities of exporting um, frozen avocado uh, flowers to China, uh, then that presents a big opportunity. If you look at a country like Tanzania, where they import, uh, export cassava, for example, the challenge there has been the global prices tend to be very low, uh, much lower than the cost of production. So there's also that issue of pricing. Uh, the pricing needs to be right um, so that there's um, sufficient profit uh, for the farmers uh, to be able to find it attractive. Um, so I think training, uh, strengthening the protocols, and sort of uh, really thinking about pricing and how to reduce the cost of produce in African countries. I think those are some of the areas that can be improved uh, to make this a more successful initiative. All right, Ken Kajinga, let's leave it there for now. The frozen avocado idea is a winner, by the way. Ken Kajinga, thank you for speaking to us. Uh, moving along, the Kenyan shilling has been on a steady losing streak the entire week in what analysts and forex traders attribute to strong dollar demand, especially from oil importers and weak inflows. On Friday at the forex market, the Kenyan shilling was quoted at a mean rate of 101.55 against the greenback. This is compared to a mean of 101.44 on Thursday, 101.36 on Wednesday, and 111.29 this Tuesday. And listen to this, 111.24 recorded on the first trading day of this week. Analysts cite Kenya's high external dollar debt and private sector leverage, the country's anemic economic growth, a high import bill, and subtle dollarization of financial transactions in Kenya for the lack of faith in the local unit as preservation of the value. And South Africa has announced 25 successful bidders in its latest round of renewable energy projects. The independent power producers were selected in the government's bid window 5, giving them the green light to produce renewable energy from solar and wind expansion. South Africa's Estate Power Utility ESCOM is struggling to provide a steady supply of electricity. The government is hoping to supplement the grid shortfalls with renewables and begin its move away from coal. Dimitri Naidu tells us more. 
While independent power producers have been given the go-ahead to feed the grid, it will take some time before there's enough power to stem ESCOM's ongoing load shedding. Load shedding has, has definitely been quite severe, and 2021 has, has been the most um, severe year we've had um, so far in terms of number of hours that we've been load shed. That obviously points to a crisis um, in the power sector. Unfortunately, this crisis was not really taken that seriously until quite recently when we had the the risk mitigation procurement program. Irony is that we've had, um, you know, six years of, of almost nothing happening um, where, when we could have been procuring and building a lot of new uh, capacity. There is relief that the process is moving along. There are, though, some terms and conditions that are being ironed out to ensure a fair and equitable rollout. Black participation has been emphasized. A dollar of 34% sold in by black people in IPPs was achieved against the target of 30%. So the DMRE not only requires participation by black South Africans at project level, but also requires participation across the entire renewable energy value chain. The department was pleased that the latest bid window attracted more female participation. For the first time, we introduced the target of 5% ownership by black women in projects. It is very encouraged that we have already achieved 7% commitment. The request for proposal required projects to commit at least 40% local content during construction, which has always been a shortcoming with renewable energy. South Africa wants the bidders to bring their projects to a financial close in the next six months and to commercial closure within the next three years. These projects are expected to add over 2,500 watts to the national grid. So the successful bidders are largely um, being led by international companies. Um, but to be clear, um, South Africans own on average 49% um, of, of the awarded projects. Most often these are BEE companies and community trusts. New bid windows 6 and 7 are expected to follow this round shortly. Samish Ranadu, CGTN, Johannesburg, South Africa. Tunisia hosted the first Mediterranean conference to support sustainable development in Libya. This international conference attracted experts from Mediterranean countries and the world. They discussed the importance of the private sector to achieve the sustainable development goals by 2030. The International Mediterranean Conference on the role of the private sector in achieving sustainable development goals in Libya was initiated by the Libyan National Planning Council with the support of the United Nations Development Program. The idea behind this Mediterranean conference is to boost partnerships in the Mediterranean area, to adopt adequate legislation and exchange of expertise and experiences among member states. We are valuing this geographical position and its human resources. This event paves the way for the Tunisian, Algerian, Libyan and Mediterranean entrepreneurs to work together in PPP projects. Libya focuses on the role of the private and public sectors in putting in place real policy and strategies while implementing reforms to achieve the goals of sustainable development. This project requires dialogue, B2B partnerships, and common projects between these two important sectors. The Libyan Minister of Labor and Rehabilitation explained that his country has launched a program to train and rehabilitate private sector workers while attracting foreign workforce. Ali Al-Abid added that Libya is determined to achieve sustainable development goals by 2030. 
the Government of National Unity in Libya and the Ministry of Labor and Rehabilitation have made an in-depth study to evaluate the country's educational program to adapt it to the job market needs. We're also organizing the foreign labor market. Libya is also rehabilitating and training youths in the armed forces. All these projects aim to activate and achieve the objectives of sustainable development in Libya. The Tunisian Minister of Culture emphasized the importance of using economic development to foster a fairer society while respecting ecosystems and natural resources. Sustainable development is based on the culture of work, respect for the environment and the natural resources provided by this environment. Let's encourage PPP investment while preserving these resources. The conference in Tunis also shed light on the dimensions of sustainable development, the private sector and investment in ICT, and the applicable mechanisms of enhancing inter-trade, as well as the investment by the private sector on green energy. The first Mediterranean conference on the role of the private sector in achieving sustainable development is an important event in the Mediterranean basin. The Libyan state PPP company is the main sponsor of the event. Abdel Shawishi, CGTN, Tunis. Don't go away. We are not done just yet. We've got your sports news coming up after the break. Here are the headlines. In sports, Nigeria's USC welterweight champion, Komaro set for a fight against Covington in New York. How would you create your legend? On the field. And uh, that's all the time we have uh, for today. That was uh, Africa Live from CGTN. And uh, this has been the Pan-African Journal, our worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, November the 6th, 2021. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And um, we are going to end out the program with Dinah Washington, the legendary Dinah Washington. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.